How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure everybody's in fellowship, ready to focus on the study of the word this evening, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we can come to you this evening and to bring uh, prayers before you as well as to study your word, to take this time to reflect upon who you are and upon how you have uh, overseen history. Father, we're studying difficult things this evening, and so we pray that you'd help us to think our way through them a little more clearly, that we may be sure to understand what you have revealed to us, even if we don't uh, fully grasp all of it. Father, we continue to pray for those in this congregation who are either traveling or are ill. We pray for them that they might recover. Many people continue to struggle struggle with a lot of difficulty uh, due to colds and flu, and there are also many who are seriously ill with uh, life-threatening diseases, and we continue to pray for them. Now, Father, we pray that we might be able to focus and concentrate and that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us this evening. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, I want to start this evening by going back to a topic that I started or ended with last time. We're in Romans 8, 28 and 29, and this is one of the key passages that is uh, <clears throat> that Calvinists go to in the support especially of election, predestination, their view of foreknowledge, and also it's related to efficacious grace uh, because of the word calling that is used here. So I want to go back to uh, look at this particular passage. We've been in Romans 8.28 uh, talking about who are the called. And last time I wanted to look or ended looking at the pa- key passages for this, for the doctrine of the efficacious call, efficacious grace or irresistible grace. This is a Calvinist doctrine. That whereby they understand that because all human beings are dead, spiritual death is a penalty for sin that means separation from God. It does not mean what Calvinists interpret it to mean as total inability. Now, we believe in total depravity, that man is, uh, every aspect of man's being is corrupt and has been corrupted by sin and affected by sin and does not uh, function in the way God designed. Man is not sick. He is spiritually dead. It's separation from God. In Calvinist understanding, man is totally unable. He's unable to do anything. He's like a dead person. A dead person can't hear, can't respond in any way, shape, or form. They are completely inoperative. And so when they hear the external invitation of the gospel, the external call of the gospel, that falls on in unable, incapable ears that cannot hear, cannot respond, cannot uh, do anything apart from 
apart from a work that they call irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit, whereby God the Holy Spirit in high Calvinism first regenerates the individual, then they can hear the gospel. The elect, he regenerates only the elect. Then they hear the gospel. Then they respond in faith, which is a gift given to them by God because in their system they view faith as something that man does. Therefore, it in itself can be uh, meritorious. In contrast, I believe that faith is non-meritorious. The believing something, it's not the act of belief that it has merit. It is the object of faith that has merit. In salvation, it is the work of Christ on the cross that has merit, not my faith. I am not saved because of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. In the Greek, that is a preposition dia with a genitive object. A genitive object mean, indicates means or uh, instrumentality. <clears throat> if it were in the accusative case, it would be translated because of faith. We are not saved because of faith. That would indicate that faith was the cause or merit of our for our salvation. But because it is through faith, faith is seen as simply a channel through which the merit of Christ comes in terms of providing righteousness for the individual. Now, in their view, the Holy Spirit is going to irresistibly draw the individual. He is going to uh, enter into <clears throat> the individual's uh, spiritual life, regenerate them first, and then draw them in a way that cannot be resisted. That doesn't mean it's instantaneous. It may take time. Uh, it may <clears throat> take a period of years, but that person can ultimately not resist this draw of the Holy of the Holy Spirit. So, I looked at three verses in John chapter six last time at the end that are the focal point for understanding this doctrine of the efficacious call or irresistible grace. And the key verse is really the center verse, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, just simple grammar, just simple observation. Who does the drawing here? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it the, the Father? It's the Father. He's the object of the, uh, he's the subject of the verb. The Father does the drawing, not the Holy Spirit. But they'll go to this verse because in their theology, they will say that the Father draws through uh, the uh, Holy Spirit as his agent. And that's <clears throat> that's fine, but it also points up one of the problems we have, not just with uh, the theology of Calvinists, but with a lot of people, is that they don't understand, no matter how much I try to beat it into their head, that you don't interpret Scripture on the basis of your theological system. That's like trying to get put the cart before the horse. You let your exegesis develop your theological system, but then you don't go read your theological system into every passage that sounds similar just because it sounds similar. And there are uh, many people that do that. That's that's 98% of Christians probably operate on that basis. They interpret the Bible on the basis of their uh, presupposed theology rather than the other way around. And we have to let the text govern our conclusions, not impose our conclusions upon the text. 
So we have to look at this particular verse in terms of its context and what is being said. Now, the other verse, the top verse on the slide, is also one that's important to understand because it impacts our interpretation, uh, our understanding of the meaning of this entire passage. It's coming out of the uh, <clears throat> uh, episode of Jesus uh, feeding the 5,000 and then identifying himself as the bread of life, using a metaphor to describe the fact that he is the source of life. He is the source of spiritual uh, spiritual nourishment. And in the course of that explanation, in verse 7 he says, or verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now that's a definitive statement. Everyone the Father gives to me will come to me. That has been taken not just by Calvinists, but by many others, to apply over a broad spectrum to anyone who believes in Christ from that time period all the way to the present and into the future. And the interpretation is that all that the Father gives to me refers to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. If you're a Calvinist, that is a term that would be equated to the elect. What I showed you last time by going to other passages where that phrase is used is that that does not refer to anyone across a broad spectrum of history who believes in Christ. It was a term used specifically by Jesus to refer to those who God gave him, specifically the apostles but also others, during that unique historical period. So this isn't a broad spectrum term for all the saved of the church age. It is a narrow spectrum reference to those who the Father gave to Jesus, primarily referring to those who were already what we would classify as Old Testament believers. When Jesus was born, if you remember, when his parents took him to the temple, there were... um, there, there were two people who came to, to his parents in the temple because they were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, and they knew when they walked in with Jesus, they immediately knew that this was the Messiah, and they, they were already believers in an Old Testament sense. And at that point, they couldn't be- become church-age believers because Jesus had gone to the cross. The church isn't born until Acts uh, chapter 2. But they're, they're believers in, a, in an Old Testament sense. And there were a number of people in Israel. Remember uh, J- the apostles, John, Andrew, uh, Peter, uh, were, uh, James, were already disciples of John the Baptist when Jesus came to call them. So they were already believers. So this, is, this term is what I'm saying is this is a term referring to specifically apostles, but in a little more general sense, I think there are some places where it could apply to a broader group of people who were Old Testament believers who were making that transition from the dispensation of Israel into eventually the church age. So we looked at that last time. The other thing I pointed out that I want to drive in again is that the issue in salvation isn't are you elect, The issue isn't, are you drawn? The issue is, do you believe? It's never expressed in the scripture any other way other than someone who believes in Jesus. 
Even if you hard-press the Calvinists, they have to admit that the only way you know if you're elect is if you believe in Jesus. That's the only issue. And that's what's pointed out here in John 6, 29, John 6, 35, John 6, 40, 6, 47, and 6, 64. The issue again and again and again is stated. In fact, 96 times in the Gospel of John, the issue is believe. Believe, 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 believe. And after reading the Gospel of John, I still have trouble understanding, and I've had a conversation with a seminary student recently about this, why they want to insert repentance or anything else into what must be done in terms of a response. If the Gospel of John is written to clearly explain what a person must do to have eternal life, and it is, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, not by repenting and believing, not by believing and being baptized, but just by believing, you will have life through his name. And 95, depending on the text, 95, 96 times in the Gospel of John, you have this one condition to acquire eternal life. And that is to believe. A couple of other times it's expressed as receiving or accepting Christ. As many as have received him, John 1.12, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. And so that's a synonym for belief. So the first thing I looked at last time, rushing towards the end, was uh, John 6.39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. So the question is, what does that refer to? Now, the way to do Bible study is when you see words or phrases, you look to see other places where those words or phrases are used. And if it's not real clear in one place, then maybe there are some other places where it's clear. And then you use the clear passages to interpret the ambiguous passages because there are some passages where certain things are ambiguous. But uh, that's because there just isn't enough information given in that verse or sentence to to, uh, hang our definition of a word or a phrase. But So we go with from the known to the unknown. So we looked at some other passages, and interestingly enough, they're mostly used in John 17.1. John 17 is really the, this is the true Lord's Prayer. Matthew 5 is not the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is Jesus' high priestly prayers, usually how it's referred to. When he prays <clears throat> the night before he went to the cross, he prays for his disciples. Now, it's always a little difficult in places to determine when he is praying for his disciples or giving them commands, whether that has a narrow application to only his uh, 11 disciples now, because Judas has already been removed, or whether he is speaking to the entire church through the disciples. But there are usually some really clear indications that he's when he's talking only about the 11. So let's look at these passages. The chapter begins, the prayer begins, uh, Father, the hour has come... Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given me authority over all flesh 
that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now, there's our phrase. God gave a group to Jesus. Now, who are they? He, he was given uh, authority. The Son was given authority over all flesh so that he could give eternal life to a subset of that all flesh, that is, this group that God had given him. Now, that's all we're told in verse 2. Verse 6 uses the phrase a little more and says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So who is it here that is referred to as the men you have given me? That, see, he just says the men you have given me. He doesn't say men and women. He's not including the Marys. He's not including uh, many of the other women who were involved in his ministry. Here he, it's, it's clear he's talking about the men God gave him, which would restrict this to the 11 uh, disciples at this point that are his. You've given me those men out of the world. They were yours, indicating they were already saved. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Then in verse 9 he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Contextually, he's still talking about the 11 uh, disciples. Then, um, I think I left a verse out of the slide from last time. Um, Let's go back and look at John. Let me turn the page to John 17. Verse um, verse 12, he says, While I was with them in the world. Who would that be? That would still be the disciples. I was with them in the world. I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Now, the son of perdition is is Judas Iscariot. Perdition is from the same Greek root for perish that we have over in John three sixteen. That uh, if people who believe whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Same root, so it indicates an unbeliever, the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So this, those who have been given to him is a restrictive term. It's not all, the whole, the whole point I'm making here is that's not a phrase that talks about even all the believers at his time. It's talking about a set, uh, a set group. Now let's go back to our passage in John, uh, 640, uh, 644. There Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, that looks like and is a universal statement. Unless there is an action of the Father drawing or attracting an individual to uh, himself, to Jesus, um, no one can come to him. There has to be some sort of action on the part of God. Now, what action is that? Here's the issue. Remember, the Calvinist is saying this is irresistible grace, the irresistible uh, <clears throat> grace uh, call of the Holy Spirit. It's internal. But is that what the verse is saying? Because the very next verse contextually gives 
gives John's support for this, or Jesus' support for this. It is written in the prophets, that's in the Old Testament, uh, specifically Isaiah 54, 13, which is at the bottom of the slide. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned, Jesus says, therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Learning and hearing and learning from the Father is a response to the Word of God. The, that ver- verse, 54.13, that quotation in John 6.44 is talking about an external call or invitation, if we want to use that category, of the Word of God presenting the claim of the gospel to an individual. And on the basis of that, God works in and through his word at this point to call people to himself. This is not talking about uh, the inner call of the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about the irresistible grace uh, of the Holy Spirit or the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. It is the external attraction of the word of God, the external call. That's all that um, I covered last time. Now that brings us back to Romans 8:28 and 29. Romans 8:28 says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now we covered that extensively in the last couple of lessons. In order to understand what he has just said, the apostle Paul's going to expand it a little bit because he's talking about facing difficult circumstances, facing adversity, facing suffering. And he says, we know that all things work together for good. That's the suffering in context going all the way back to verse 17 of chapter 8. And then he explains it a little more, and that's indicated by that first word for. In the Greek, this is the, uh, the word gar, which always introduces an explanation, and often that explanation borders on uh, expressing a cause for or a reason for why something was just said. So what's happening here is he's made this universal principle that we all know something, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, why does that happen? Why is that important? Remember, he's challenged in that there's two groups of people who suffer, those who su- the, I mean, two groups of heirs, those who are heirs of God, no condition attached, and those who are joint heirs with Christ if they suffer with him. All right. Now that's the key key issue because start once he said that uh, back in uh, Romans eight seventeen. Once he said that, then he goes off to explain the significance of suffering in the life of the believer in preparing them for the future r- ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom, and that those who suffer with Christ. Uh, this will be used by God to bring them to maturity, and on the basis of how they grow and mature, uh, they will be given rewards and responsibilities and privileges in the future messianic kingdom. So he's going to explain all of this, and he starts by giving us a chain of events from eternity past related to God's plan and purposes for the believer. Because, as I pointed out before, is Paul is addressing his audience as if they're all highly motivated 
believers who are pursuing the greatest amount of spiritual maturity. I do the same thing. I address those in the congregation who want to go somewhere. Somebody said you, you're, you're trying to move the movers. I, I, I don't, I'm not addressing the folks who are sitting on the sidelines. I'm trying to challenge those who are going somewhere to keep going there. It's not that I'm ignoring the ones who can't make up their mind, but the train's already left the station, and <clears throat> I'm primarily ministering to those who are, who are on the train and going somewhere, not those who are trying to figure out if they want to be on the train. Uh, they're going to figure out if they want to be on the train by hearing the Word of God as the Holy Spirit makes it clear in their lives. But the role of the pastor is to move with the movers and say, look, we need to go to spiritual maturity. I'm going to take you there. Let's go. And who wants to go with me? And the ones who can't make up their mind, well, I'm not going to sit back with the, with the ones who want to stay in their diapers and continue to mess their diapers and forget about everybody who wants to grow to spiritual maturity. And that's how Paul is. He's addressing the ones who want to go somewhere. And it's not that he's belittling or diminishing or minimizing or marginalizing uh, the ones who want to sit around their diapers and figure out if they really want to grow up or not. They will eventually, hopefully, go forward. The ones who don't, well, they're going to fall by the wayside, and they're going to end up with lives that are characterized only by wood, hay, and straw, and they're going to be failures at the judgment seat of Christ. But Paul's focusing on those who want to go somewhere. And so he's challenging them with the plan of God. God's, God's got a plan, and that plan is to conform you and me to the image of his Son, and he uses suffering to do it. And so when we understand the role of suffering and adversity in our lives, then it changes how we respond to it in our life because we understand it has a purpose and a dynamic, and God is using that to change our character so that it reflects the character of and the, the character of Christ, the image of his son. That's the first part of Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined see that's the end game that God set up, the end game for us is to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. We'll get to the second half of the verse later. But before we get there, we have to understand this word for no, and we have to understand its relation to the next word, which is predestination. And those are clearly two separate contexts here. That's sort of one of the first observations I have. But when it comes to understanding foreknowledge, there is a problem. And the problem is that that many people, when they read this at, at sort of surface reading, they think that this is talking about simply knowing something ahead of time, that that's what foreknowledge means. It's prescience, prescience. It's knowing something's going to happen before it happens. However, when you come to Calvinists, they say, no, 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 no. It is not knowing something that is going to happen because God can't know what's going to happen unless he's determined that it's going to happen. Understand that? In Calvinist thought, God can't know something until first he determines it. So they connect this idea of foreknowledge to predetermination, and they connect it to uh, election. Now, we don't have the word election anywhere in this passage. It's not a passage about, about election, but because they define calling as choosing, and then they define foreknowledge as 
choosing, having a, an intimate relationship with, uh, they, they tie all these words so closely to election that all this is about is God choosing who will be saved and and pulling, uh, bringing about his plan for them. So I want to read to you just a couple of examples of some Calvinist commentar- uh, uh, commenters, uh, <clears throat> commentary writers and how they explain this. The first is Douglas Moo. Douglas Moo is a highly respected uh, commentator. He, he teaches uh, theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago and has written uh, numerous commentaries and several commentaries on Romans. And he writes about foreknowledge here. In the six occurrences of these words in the New Testament, only two mean know beforehand. Now, what he's talking about is the six occurrences of this word prognosco. Now, the root word in that word, gnosko, means knowledge, or to know as the verb, it means to know. The prefix pra means ahead of time or before, so it means to know beforehand, okay? And so he looks at this verb, just a verb here, and says there are uh, six usage Six uses of this word. So you have the verb and you have uh, nouns as well. Uh, but here he's looking primarily at the verb. Um, in the six occurrences of these words in the New Testament, only two mean no beforehand. So he says four have a different meaning than to know something ahead of time. He says Acts 26.5 and Second Peter 3.17. We'll look at those in a minute. The three others... I mean, 6 minus 2 is 3, right? New math. That's what he said. The three others, besides the occurrence in this text, okay, that picks up the fourth one, all of which have God as their subject. Now, Now, I want to point that out. He's going to make a distinction here in the meaning of this word because these four passages have God as their subject. So the word's going to change its meaning because God's the subject. That's a fallacy. That is a fallacious way to do a word study, okay? But it's very common among Calvinist uh, theologians. He says, uh, all of which have God as their subject mean uh, or mean not know before in the sense of intellectual knowledge or cognition, I would add ahead of time, but enter into relationship with before. That's what foreknow means. It means to enter into a relationship with someone ahead of time. You knew that, didn't you? That's just obvious. You look at word foreknowledge in the Bible, and that, I mean, in, in the dictionary, that's what it means. So they, they change the meaning. It means enter into relationship with before or choose or determine before. And then he cites Romans 11, 2, 1 Peter 1, 20, Acts 2, 23, 1 Peter 1, 2. If then, he says, the word means know intimately, notice how he just changed the meaning again, it means to know intimately for whom God knew intimately ahead of time. That's how he would translate that in Romans 8. If then the word means know intimately or have regard for, this must be a knowledge or love that is unique to believers and that leads to their being predestined. You got that, right? I just want you to get experience and read how they argue, okay? Then we have another guy, absolutely brilliant, I didn't have great warm fuzzies about Tom Schreiner uh, because of his hyper-Calvinism, uh, and I heard him speak at, at uh, ETS 
couple of summers ago and went to the ETS, that's the Evangelical Theological Society conference in Atlanta because the focus was on uh, a lot of the really errant, errant theology of this British Anglican uh, priest by the name of N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright has negatively impacted several formerly solid doctrinal congregations in this country, and that's why this is an issue. We have people in this congregation who have family members who are in those congregations, and this garbage that N.T. Wright has for me, and this guy's incredibly brilliant, N.T. Wright. Tom Schreiner is too. He really impressed me, though, with his devastating critique of N.T. Wright at the uh, ETS conference. So my uh, respect for him really went up. These guys make anybody that we know who knows the languages pale in insignificance. N.T. Wright probably has forgotten more about Greek and Hebrew, and he's got a prodigious memory, almost a photographic memory, and can cite from memory sources throughout patristic writings, throughout... um, uh, any kind of uh, uh, secular writings, and and his his arguments are so loaded with minutia of of data that it just overwhelms you with his with with his argumentation. How in the world can you go through and analyze you know three or four thousand references that he's just thrown at you when you just barely can read Greek or Hebrew and he's quoting them all in the original language? So it's very overwhelming in terms of their intellectual and academic accomplishments. But it's not about the details. It really gets down to some bottom line issues. But Tom Schreiner is also a very strong uh, high Calvinist. So he's written a massive commentary on Romans, and he writes uh, regarding our view in this first slide, some have argued that the verb praegno, uh, he foreknew, here should be defined only in terms of God's foreknowledge, and what he means by that is his prescient knowledge ahead of time. That is, God predestined to salvation those whom he saw in advance, would choose to be part of his redeemed community. This fits with Acts 26.5 and 2 Peter 3.17, where the verb prognoskain clearly means to know beforehand. According to this understanding, predestination is not ultimately based on God's decision to save some. Instead, God has predestined to save those whom he foresaw would choose him. But see, in his thinking, choosing him is a meritorious act. Positive volition is meritorious. That's where they get hung up. Um, which you said, such an interpretation is attractive in that it forestalls uh, the impression. Remember that word forestall. We'll come back to that in a minute. It forestalls the impression that God arbitrarily saves some and not others. It is quite unlikely, however, that it accurately represents the meaning of prognoskine when the reference is to God's foreknowledge, as it is in Romans 8.29. Now, his view. The background of the term, now pay attention to how he argues this. The background of the term, that is prognosco, okay? Not gnosko, which is just knowledge, but prognosco, which is knowledge beforehand. He says the background of the term should be located in the Old Testament, wherefore God to know refers to his covenantal love in which he sets the affection on those whom he has chosen. Okay, he's talking. what's the word he's talking about here? This is a quiz. Wake up. What's the word he's talking about now? The Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is yada, which means to know. 
Did he just shift terms on us? Yes, he did. He went from prognosco to yada as if they were related. This is typical in Calvinist argument. He's, he, he, he wasn't starting with gnosko to know and then go to the Old Testament equivalent yada to know. He went from prognosco to yada. Those are not equivalent terms. Here's the fundamental error. I'll state it again later on. When you take a compound word, it does not mean what the root word means. You can't use the root word as your standard. When you take a prefix like F-O-R-E, for, and add it to the word stall, and you have the word forestall, which he just used, forestall cannot, the meaning of forestall cannot be arrived at by understanding the word stall. It has a different set of meanings because it's used differently. That's why they generated the word. Word meaning comes not from dictionaries but by usage, and word meanings are not the sum of the parts. They're usage, okay? Now, he goes on to say, gives some scripture references. He says, the parallel terms consecrate and appoint. Parallel to to know is what he's saying. Are noteworthy for the text is not really saying that God foresaw See, there's no pra-yada. There's no pre-anything prefix to yada. So I just wanted to point that out. I'm not going to read the rest of the quote. That's where the flaw is. Then there's Palmer. I quoted from this work last week. This is a small book that a lot of people hand out on the five points of Calvinism, and they state, when the Bible speaks of God knowing particular individuals, notice, where's the word for? It's not there. See, they slide back and forth. This is a slippery trick in, on a logical fallacy is to shift between different terms as if you haven't changed terms. You start off talking about apples, and suddenly you're talking about oranges, but you never really I told anybody that you changed the term. When the Bible speaks of God knowing particular individuals, it often means that he has special regard for them, that they are the objects of his affection and concern. So knowing, in their view, has to do with this intimate knowledge and affection. That's what to know means. Now, in some places, it has an intimacy to it when Adam knew Eve, but that's an idiomatic expression. And not it's not saying that no always means or has as part of its meaning that, that uh, intimate knowledge. Okay. All I've done so far is set up the problem for you so you understand where Calvinists come from. Now, some of you talk to Calvinists. You're familiar with this. Some of you may not. Uh, Bob Beaver reminded me last time. I'd forgotten about this. We got in some intense discussions with my good friend, Wayne House. Uh, Wayne's a sharp guy. Wayne's a great theologian in many areas, but Wayne is a five-point Calvinist, and I've been cornered by him and a couple of others at conferences, and we have lengthy debates over these things. But Wayne got, it was kind of fun on that first Israel trip some years ago because all of a sudden some of the folks from this church met a real live flesh and blood five-point Calvinist and they had a real teachable time. They learned some things in trying to interact with someone as knowledgeable as Wayne and going through this stuff. So anyway, what does foreknowledge mean? Well, I'm going to start off, usually during a word study, you don't start off by going to a dictionary. Dictionary, the, the people who write dictionaries, the lexicographers, they're the ones who studied all the different ways in which a word was used, and then they give you their, uh, their categories, how they've summarized and categorized the evidence. 
You don't look to their their summaries first because if you're really good, and this is how we were trained at Dallas Seminary, is we should be able to do the same work that they do. If you've got a master's in theology from Dallas Seminary, I was told by a guy who got this from an accrediting agency, a master's of theology from Dallas Seminary, at least in the 70s and 80s, was regarded more highly by accrediting agencies than the PhDs and DMINs from most schools. It's a four-year, 130-hour training program, okay? And if you go through a major in, or get a, with a heavy emphasis or Greek or Hebrew, by your third year, you ought to be equipped and trained well enough to be able to do word studies almost as well as any of these lexicons. So you can check their evidence, and their evidence needs to be checked at times. So one of the primary lexicons, a really large lexicon in the, in the print version, Originally, it was known by its, its uh, authors, Liddell Scott. It's a very old classical Greek dictionary, but it covers the whole span of, of Greek from classical Greek in, in 4th, 5th century B.C. all the way up through the Koine period. So it gives examples even of scriptural usage for different words. Liddell Scott, and it was revised and uh, expanded a little bit by a man named Jones, so now it's referred to as Liddell Scott Jones, said there's two meanings to prognosco. One, to know, to perceive, to learn, or understand beforehand. To prognosticate, foreknow, learn things in advance. Or two, to judge beforehand in the sense of evaluating something ahead of time. Now, did you see anywhere in there a definition relating to choice or election or loving relationships or predestination? No. They don't recognize any of those nuances as part of the meaning of this term. And that covers, that dictionary covers from classical Greek in the 5th century, 5th, 6th century BC all the way up through the New Testament period. Now, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, Danker, which is, uh, uh, as I put B, I get these these terms mixed up a little bit. I just I type bag D, but BDAG is the latest version, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, the third edition. List two meanings. To know beforehand or in advance, that is to have knowledge of something. And then they, they list the second meaning as choose beforehand. Now, Arndt and Gingrich just focuses on New Testament usage. But, they, but the only passages that they use to cite the meaning of choose beforehand are Romans 8.29, Romans 9 through 11, uh, 1 Peter 1.20, and then they say no something from past time, Acts 26.5. Notice the, the passages where we want to know the meaning for are the ones they list. Those are the, those are the passages in question. You can't define the term in a dubious question by going to a dictionary which says this is the only place this term is used in this way. This is the same kind of error that Arndt and Gingrich had in the meaning when it listed the meaning of tongues. When you're dealing with the tongues problem, open up Arndt and Gingrich, it says the word means three things. It means the organ in your mouth. It means speaking in, uh, in human languages. And it means ecstatic utterances. And for ecstatic utterances, it lists 1 Corinthians 13. Well, wait a minute. 
how do you know it means that in 1 Corinthians 13 if it doesn't mean that anywhere else? This is a, this is a linguistic fallacy. You can't, it's like defining a word by itself. You can't do that. There is, the point I'm making in these dictionaries, and then there's Moulton and Milligan, which looks at all of the uses of words in the Koine Papyri, says that it, the word means to know, to foreknow, or to know previously. In other words, the dictionaries do not recognize any other meaning except to know something ahead of time. That's it. So where do these guys come up with the idea that in these three or four passages in the New Testament, and only in the New Testament, and just because God is the subject, that it means to election, it means choice, it means to know something intimately. They have read their theology into the text. They've done a top-down uh, top down study. Now, there's another uh, lexicon out there that's more popular. If you've seen the, word, the complete word study New Testament, this is done, edited by Spiros Zodiades. And uh, he's Greek, uh, and he's written quite a bit, and this is really a, a dictionary geared more to, to, to laymen. In fact, one of the founding members of this congregation used to be on his board. Tony Deaton used to be on uh, Zodiati's board before he died uh, years ago. Tony's Greek originally. And anyway, Zodiades in, in this book says that what it means is, number one, to perceive or recognize beforehand, to know previously to take into account or especially consider something beforehand, to grant prior acknowledgement or recognition of someone to foreknow. It, the first meaning is used of mere prescience. And then he introduces the second meaning, used of God's eternal counsel and includes all that he is considered and purposed to do. That's a theological definition that is not in evidence in terms of the, of the, of the lexical data. It's read into the data. Now, the New International... New Te- uh, Dictionary of New Testament Theology has a real concise term statement in terms of all the usage prior to the New Testament. The corresponding noun prognosis, attested as a medical technical term since uh, Hippocrates, and you go to the doctor, you get a prognosis, same word from prognosco, denotes the foreknowledge which makes it possible to predict the future. That's how the word is used. That's the core meaning of, of prognosco. It does not have this idea of intimate knowledge or choice or election. And what are some of the passages where, where the term's used? We'll look at these in detail. Acts 26, 5. Uh, they knew me beforehand. Now that's really obvious when Paul says they knew me from the first. That's not a debated passage. Everybody agrees this is, uh, this is prescience or, or knowledge ahead of time. Then there's Romans 8.29, the passage we're studying. Romans 11.2, which is in the context of, has, of answering the question, has God thrown away his people, Israel? And Paul answers by saying, no, may it never be. Uh, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Who are his people? Israel. So here foreknowledge is used in relation to God's plan for Israel. First uh, Peter one twenty. He indeed, the he there refers to the Lord Jesus Christ from the previous verse, talking about the fact that we've not been redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life, but from the precious blood as of the Lamb without spot or blemish, the blood of Jesus Christ. He indeed was foreordained, known beforehand. So here, the object of foreknowledge is Jesus Christ. Second Peter three seventeen states, "You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand." Uh, 
this is again not talking about a theologically relevant uh, idea, just in terms of everyday human experience. You knew something ahead of time. So obviously the primary meanings of the known passages are simply to know something ahead of time. Then we ran into it in Acts 2.33 when Peter says that Jesus Christ was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Again, it's talking about Jesus Christ. It's not talking about uh, choosing people for salvation. And then 1 Peter 1.2, talking about the the, uh, uh, recipients of Peter's letter, that they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So that, that, as you'll see, as we'll get there, is election is based on foreknowledge, not the other way around. Foreknowledge doesn't mean choice, or there's a redundancy there. Now let's go back and just kind of look at some of these passages. In Acts uh, 26.5, you might want to turn to some of these passages. I'll take a, two or three minutes at each one, and it might help you understand and you can make some notes in the margin so you can recover this uh, later on. The question we're addressing is, does prognosco mean to know beforehand in the, only the sense of prescient knowledge, that is, knowledge be, before the fact, or does it mean to elect or to determine or to lovingly choose beforehand? Those are the meanings that our Calvinist commentators have told us it means. First thing we saw was that the only attested meaning outside of the Bible and the meaning in several New Testament passages indicates to know beforehand with the exception of four these four verses. Therefore, since the meaning everywhere else except for these four verses is to know beforehand, the burden of proof is on the Calvinist theologian to say that it means something it doesn't mean in any other location. Okay, they've got to prove that because they're going, they're going against a mountain of data. And they're saying in these four verses, it doesn't mean what it means everywhere else. That's essentially their position. Second thing that they claim that they make is, uh, or the second problem we have to deal with is that in terms of basic word meaning and word studies, words do not change their meaning just because God becomes the subject. When we read that a person loves, using agape, and then that God loves, the word love doesn't change its meaning. Love means love. Agape means agape, whether it's God as the subject or man as the subject. Now, obviously, a dimension of God's activity is going to be greater, but it's it's not that love means one thing when it talks about men doing it, and it means something completely different when God does it. That's a logical fallacy. That's, that's a fallacious methodology. So when we look at Acts 26.5, the context here is that Paul is witnessing. Uh, he's been called before King Herod Agrippa II, and he is giving a, a defense for his gospel. And so he reminds in this verse, he's reminding uh, Agrippa that all of the Jews, that Paul had gone to Rome, I mean, he'd gone, and so, excuse me, Paul had gone to Jerusalem. A riot had broken out. The Roman cohort had, had uh, surrounded him, protected him, uh, put him under arrest, taken him under house arrest to Caesarea. 
And Paul claimed the right of a Roman citizen to, to appeal his trial to Rome, so he's been under basic house, basic house arrest in Caesarea waiting to, for his transport to Rome. And during that time, he got this opportunity to talk to Agrippa. So he's talking about all the Jews that got mad at him back in Jerusalem. And he says that they knew who I They know me. I lived here. I, I, I was one of the uh, top rabbinical students in, in Gamaliel's yeshiva. Everybody knew me. Everybody knows me. And so he says, they knew me beforehand. That's the idea, is before this event occurred, they already knew me. Now, there's a couple of important things to point out here. When Calvinists look at this term, prognosco, they want to define that how as having a relationship, having an intimate relationship, that that's what no means in many cases, having an intimate relationship, or lovingly choosing someone ahead of time to have a relationship with. That's, that's their idea. It, they will say it doesn't mean knowing about someone, it means knowing someone. In Romans 8.29, we read, For whom God foreknew, not who God knew about, but who God knew. Now, the problem is that when we look at, at the use of, of this term here, Paul is saying, they knew me. Did all those Jews in, in Jerusalem have a personal, intimate knowledge of Paul? No, they did not. They knew about him, but they didn't know him in the sense that the Calvinists want to import this knowledge or intimate knowledge into the term. So um, the, the idea of about doesn't have to be stated. It's embedded in the meaning of the Greek. And I'm going to show you an example of that. In Hebrews 6, 9. Writer of Hebrews says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Now, in the Greek, there's no of there. Uh, better things is actually an accusative case. A genitive case would give you the right to include of, but it's not a genitive case. Better things is the ob- direct object of the verb. It's in the accusative case. And the verb is, we are convinced. But of is embedded in the nuance of the verb itself. We know of Better things, we know about better things. So that idea of knowing about uh, Paul is the about is included in the concept there. That's how the Greeks would say it. They just wouldn't add, have that preposition present. It was embedded in the sense of the verb. So in um, Acts 6, uh, 26, 5, simply stating, they knew about me from the first. They'd heard all, all of this. So... Um, The verb there just simply gives us a core meaning of knowing something something beforehand. Now, the idea of knowing about is, is important to understand as we look at a couple other passages. In 1 Peter 1.20, we have, again, the use of the word uh, prognosco. However, unfortunately, the King James Version, the New King James Version, and... Uh, the NIV version, have chosen to translate prognosco as foreordained. 
But foreordained translates another Greek word, praharizo. We'll talk about that word later. Praharizo is foreordained. Prognosco is for no completely different concepts, but they muddied the water by translating prognosco as foreordained here, and that's wrong. The NASB, the NET Bible, have correctly translated this foreknown. Maybe some other translations did as well. Now, the context here is a statement about redemption, because you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or without, uh, without blemish and without spot. Actually, Christ comes in the Greek. That's the last word. It's a genitive, a masculine genitive singular. And so the first word foreordained is a participle. In verse 20, he indeed was foreordained. That's all one word in the Greek. It's the participial form of prognosco. And it's a, a masculine genitive singular which means it has to refer back to a masculine singular genitive noun, which is can only be Christ. So uh, the foreordained here refers to Christ as the one who is foreordained. So now we've seen that Israel foreordained is used in relation to Israel. It's also used in relation to Christ. He indeed was foreordained, should be foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now, the thing that you should notice here is there's a contrast in this verse. The second half of the verse says that he was manifest in these times for you. That's a time contrast with what? That he was known beforehand. See, you have a beforehand and a now. It's a temporal contrast. If you take out the... The, the, the knowledge beforehand aspect and just say this means choice or this means election, then you lose the, the emphasis of Peter here that there's a contrast between God set up this plan and eternity passed beforehand and now it's come to pass. It's a then and now uh, emphasis in this particular verse. So uh, the uh, our foreknowledge here simply means that God in his omniscience knew from eternity past his plan, what would happen and what he would plan in bringing about salvation in relation to Jesus Christ. Then we have 2 Peter 3.17, which is pretty simple. It's just a very clear meaning of knowing something ahead of time or prescience. Paul reminds his readers that the Lord will come as promised and the earth and its elements will pass away. Thus, since they know these things beforehand, or since you've been told what will happen ahead of time, you can prepare yourself for it. So again, we have two passages that we've looked at, which clearly talk about the fact that that, uh, uh, foreknowledge, prognosco, means to know something ahead of time. So following the principle, the known helps us interpret the vague or the unclear. We've got to say that those other passages should have the same meaning of knowing something ahead of time. Now, next time, I don't have time to finish this tonight, but next time I want to come back and we're going to look at uh, two other passages that are very important. One is Acts 2.23, where Peter says that Christ was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And then we'll get into the Peter passage, which talks, and that's really interesting, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, because in the Greek it's a totally different word order. Uh, means basically the same thing, but when you look at the word order, it's, it says some interesting things because I'll tell you, Peter's talking to a select group there, 
That's why he calls them elect. But it's not what you think. So I'll see you next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to begin this study on your foreknowledge and its impact on our on your plan for our salvation and our future destiny to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We pray that you will help us to think through, evaluate what we've learned tonight and go back over these passages that we may have a clear understanding of what you are accomplishing in our lives, bringing us to that desired destiny of being conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.